0: Morning, Watermark. This morning's scripture reading is Matthew twenty-three, twenty-nine through thirty-nine. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify, others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood and righteousness of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.
1: All right, thanks, man. Hey, good morning. Everybody all right? Great, 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 great. A big... Uplifting passage just for you, and we're gonna do this. Uh, this is uh, this is the last week in. Uh, you know, sometimes your iPad does that thing where it won't turn. It's doing that. Um, this is our last week in Matthew chapter twenty-three. Um, in the next few weeks, I guess we're gonna be talking eschatology, big fancy theology word that means like end times stuff like that. Um, that'll be fun. Yeah, you can woo that. There's all kinds of all kinds of ideas out there, and uh, I'm gonna come at this from a, a first century sort of. Um, Palestinian Jewish uh, Christian, first century Christian perspective. Um, and so here's what we're going to do this morning. Um, this is going to get really heavy at first. And, and then it's going to get a little lighter. we we'll catch our breath. Then it's going to get heavy again. Um, the way that this passage is written is basically how I'm going to do this sermon. A lot of heavy stuff right up front. Um, and at the end, there is this huge prayer for hope and an offer uh, to come to Christ, this idea of like, of like I, I'm i offering you another way, a better way. And this is how this is going to go, okay? So it's going to, uh, um, I, I want it to hit the same way that it hits the Pharisees. Um, we're going to talk about our past, we're going to talk about our present, and we're going to talk about um, Jesus and what Jesus is trying to do with us. Um, if you were here last week, how many of you were here last week? How many of you pulled up to the parking lot and said, nah? <laughs> yeah. Many did, I know. Um, and so it's going to be a little bit of a continuation of that, um, the idea of what is the point of God's people? What are we doing here? What has God been doing for 2,000 years? I'm arguing that he has been, he's been uh, building a people in this world um, to represent him, to be Jesus in community, in the, as the body of Christ in the lives of the people around us. So, um, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, let's pray and then let's go. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I lift up every single person in this room for whatever reason you have brought us all together into one space this morning, and I ask that you would speak to us. I ask, Father, that you'd send the Spirit of God to, uh, to reside amongst us, to um, to create within us again uh, new hearts. Um, I ask that the, uh, the Spirit of Christ would be present and that, that we would see Christ in each other, that we would... Um, as we are uh, in conversation, as we take communion, as we read these ancient words of of your people, of specifically Matthew, um, uh, one of your followers who who led one of your churches and, and, and wrote these things in a specific way for his people to ponder all of these things so that they could be uh, the presence of Christ in their own city and in their own community. I pray that uh, this stuff would hit us new and fresh. I pray that you would convict us. I pray that we would repent. I pray that... Uh, um, we would be people who are separate um, from everything else happening in this world. That we would be, um, when people look at our community, um, they would get a glimpse of what of what of what Christ is like. They would get a glimpse of a different king that we are following, of a different of uh, different kingdom that we are building. Um, and I pray that. Uh, that we would, we would grasp that in new ways every time we come together. As we take communion, help us to see you in a new light. Help us to see our own, our own place in this world in a new light. Encourage us, inspire us, and make us bold. Thank you, Father, in your name. Amen. Okay, so as I said, I'm going to start off a little heavy. We're going to start off with a thought experiment. Um, because Jesus is confronting his people, these Pharisees. These are, these are the religious leaders of the Jewish people in his day. Jesus would have been raised studying under these Pharisees, and he confronts them um, because of the general way that they are moving throughout their world. They are um, regularly sort of venerating the prophets that came before them. They are decorating their tombs. They're building monuments to these prophets, yet they are the very descendants of the people who murdered these prophets, and they're pretending as if they were different, as if they are not the descendants of the people. As if they are not the kind of people that would do this kind of thing. And so I wanted to start off with a, a bit of a thought experiment this morning. And it has to do with our past, with Christianity. There are times when we have been the presence of God. And there are times when we have been the presence of evil in the world. Um, so um, I want this thought experiment to start with the idea of like the Crusades. Um, if you were alive during the Crusades... Yeah. If you were alive during the Crusades, would you have taken part in this? Would you have taken up the sword, earthly might and weaponry, the thing that Isaiah says, these weapons are to be beat into plowshares. Um, and would you have emblazoned these swords with the cross, the symbol of how Christians are supposed to view God in this world, God's response to evil? Dying at the hands of powerful Roman governments, um, not responding in kind, even being taunted and saying, "Why don't you call down your armies to slaughter these people, to get you down off this cross?" And Jesus offers a new way forward. He says, "No, no, 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 no. This is how salvation and love enters into this world." Would you then take as as our ancestors did? Would you then take this symbol? of of Christian nonviolence? And would you emblazon it on your shields and on your swords, on your hilts, and slaughter people in the name of this because they are your enemies, your theological enemies? Or even your mortal enemies? Um, How would you respond to violence? Um, How about, let's fast forward a bit. The German Peasants War, 1525, 40,000 Protestants rose up and slaughtered their Catholic brothers and sisters? Would you have taken part in this? It's possible that many of us would. It's possible that all of us would have. Um, how about the massacre uh, at Saint, on St. Saint Bartholomew's Day? I always have a, word saying, a hard time saying Bartholomew. I'm a public speaker. Um, St. Bartholomew's Day, when 2,000 Protestants were murdered in the streets of Paris by the Catholics. Um how about the expulsion of the Jews and Muslims from the Iberian Peninsula in fourteen ninety two by the Protestants? They said, No, this is going to be a Christian city, and we're driving these people out. And and these people suffered and died on this trip, thousands and thousands of them, as they are expelled by God's people. How would we have responded at different times throughout our own history? Would you have been a part of this? I don't know how to answer this. I, I, I may have. You may have. Um, what was it that Spurgeon said there? But for the grace of God, go I. Like, it's entirely possible. Um, how about um, slavery? I'm not going to get into whether or not some of us, even today, still benefit from the fact that slavery existed 150 years ago. I want to go back and talk about if you were there then would you have taken part in it? Would you have at least financially benefited from it? Um, The record that we have of the Christians, including some of the greatest preachers of our history during the Enlightenment, uh, I'm sorry, during the the Great Awakening, um, some of the most well-known people who founded incredible seminaries and institutions at points here and there, were swayed by these things and financially benefited from oppression and 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 travesty. Um, there's a man, George Woodfield, I've read his books, amazing preacher, amazing theological teacher, um, one of the most well known, um, he, he heavily influenced by John Wesley. Um, there's a historian Harry Stout that says he was the first intercolonial celebrity. Like, like you know, celebrity preachers, it's a big thing now. Like, one of the first, right here. He, when he preached, people listened. And they were inspired, and they changed, and they repented. And he preached um, to crowds so big that there were no buildings big enough to hold the amount of people that came to hear him. And his, his crowds were diverse. There was, there was rich people, high class. There was low class. There was, there was poor white people. There was, there was poor immigrants, and there was slaves. And they all gathered together to hear this man preach. However... Um, what started off at the beginning of his preaching career as speaking out against slavery and speaking out against um, what he called, um, sorry, uh, what he called the monsters of barbarity, those who tortured and beat the slaves. Um, it softened as time went on, and you can track it. And, and there's like 10 other stories that, that, that we know of by by many of these preachers, that this is generally the path that it went. So right around 1738, he started an orphanage, an incredible thing called Bethesda Orphanage. Um, Bethesda is a, is a word that means, that means house of mercy. And this house of mercy, it still exists today as Bethesda Academy outside of Savannah, Georgia. Um, and this house of mercy, this orphanage was incredible. And it, it uh, changed the lives of so many orphans. And rescued them, and fed them, and educated them, and raised them up to be incredibly godly people. But at some point, they started struggling financially, and they couldn't make ends meet, and there was some mismanagement of funds by different people. Um, and at some point, they, they got creative in trying to find ways to keep this thing afloat. And so, they ended up, um, uh, Whitfield ended up purchasing a plantation, To generate profits. Uh, One Christian family donated a slave. To work on the plantation. And others donated money to buy more slaves. And eventually he began petitioning. The political leaders of Georgia. Which was a free territory at the time. To allow slavery. So we go from one end of the spectrum to the other. And there's a progression that happens. Because at the beginning. um, Here's sort of how this works. At the beginning what you see as a moral horror. As a terrible thing that never should exist. And never should have happened. You at some point. You don't want to. Be excluded. So in in the spirit of avoiding exclusion, you don't want to be cast out because there's opportunities open to people, right? Um, If you'll sort of behave and sort of speak the party line. And so instead of avoiding exclusion, you sort of formed what we'll call uncomfortable alliances. Where, you know, you're not like supporting it, but you're benefiting from it financially, and this changes over time, um, and once you begin to financially benefit from it, it ends up becoming an instrument of God. And I hear this language today: the terrible things that the church condones or takes part in or promotes or defends, will say it's an instrument of God. It's not perfect, but God is using it to do good things, and that's awful. No, it's a it's a moral horror. And you fail to see it. And instead, God's people, we end up taking part in these things because it benefits us in some way. Because in high places, when you rise to certain levels, the scriptures talk clearly about spiritual darkness in high places. This is not. I know we like to take these ideas and just make them. It's just talking about spiritual warfare. A spiritual idea. Spiritual warfare is spiritual warfare because it affects human beings in this world. Like... There is spiritual darkness in high places. Once you reach a certain level where you have influence and power, there are opportunities that you have to take part in things that you did not have opportunity to take part in at the very bottom. Things are open to you. There are ways in which you can benefit from moral horrors that you were never tempted to before because those were your people. But you're separated now. And throughout Christianity's history, this is what we see regularly and it never ends well. And, it, and God's people have to enter into a time of repentance. And throughout Christian history, we can see this constantly. So, this is what Jesus is dealing with. The people that have raised him spiritually, right? Like the, the Pharisees. They, they taught him, his mother, his brothers and sisters in the synagogues. And Jesus sees, standing in the temple, their corruption. He sees it. And he's not spiritually deaf to what is happening. And so he speaks to them. And here's what he says. We're going to start at verse 31. He says, so you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. So he says, look, you go out and you build these statues for the prophets and you honor them. You are the same people who killed them. You were the leaders. Your ancestors killed them. And you're going to do the same thing. You know how I know? It's not hard to see. You flip back a few chapters and you read this. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. They're doing it again. The Spirit of God is present among them, delivering them the message of God that they need to repent and change their ways and be the presence of God in the world. A people who bless the world around them. Don't, they don't look like the world around them. They don't take part in the same things. It didn't take long for after the Israelites to be saved from Egypt. And God says, never go back to Egypt. Their horses, their chariots, their slavery, all of it, never go back to that. You will be my people. And it didn't take long for the Israelites, as you read in the book of Ecclesiastes, I covered a little little bit of this last week. It didn't take long for them to instantly be importing chariots from Egypt and weapons of war from Egypt and slave labor to build their temples. They became what God had saved them from. And so, Jesus says, you're doing it again. You're not resisting the temptations of evil in this world. You're not being God's people, God's kingdom. Put here with one king as one people, knowing that all of the world belongs to Yahweh. Instead, you look like just like every other nation. And so he starts talking about this idea called the house made desolate. Now, this is, uh, this is an ancient sort of idea that, that runs the whole thread of the Old Testament. Here's how the Old Testament works. Um, and we've talked about this a lot, a little refresher course here. You've seen this if you've been here uh, for the last year or so. Um, the cycle of Israel is very simple. It happens over and over. For the quickest instances of how this happens, read the book of Judges. Every chapter starts with a new king or a new judge, and it really quickly just runs the circle the whole way. Over and over and over. So there's a king that is anointed. The king is supposed to be serving over the people under God. It's, it's sort of a, it's an arrangement God made. God knows, no, I'm your king. And they're like, we want a human king. Okay. Um, I'm going to accommodate your sin. I'm going to give you a king. He's going to be under me over you. And you're not going to like it. It's not going to go well. And it never did. They have a king. And the king starts getting off track and following other gods, worshiping other idols, taking part in other things. Um, and the prophet stands up and says, what are you doing? We're called to be God's people. When people look at us, they're supposed to know what Yahweh is like. Why are you leading the people into idolatry? What are you doing? And every single time, they kill the prophet in various creative ways. But they always kill the prophet. Um, because nobody wants to hear the true message of God because it's convicting. Like, and then uh, the king leads Israel astray. Now that the prophet's gone, I can do whatever I want. They lead Israel astray. And then what happens is every time God says, you know what, fine. Paul even references this, fine. Um, I'm just going to give you what you want. You don't want me, you want them. I'll let you have them. And God withdraws from his people. This is when God withdraws, that's the judgment of God on your life. Okay? That's when you should be terrified. And every single time, they are oppressed by the people um, either that they wanted to be like or that they were competing with in sort of violence and brutality, right? Like and they get conquered by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. Um, the Akkadians, over and over and over. They get conquered and conquered and conquered every single time. Um, And it is always exile and oppression. Sometimes their temple is burnt to the ground and pushed right off the mountain into the burn pile at the bottom of the hill called Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, And and sometimes it's just destroyed and knocked over. Other times their whole city is burnt to the ground. Other times the temple's left standing and it's it's used to worship another god. Um, But every single time the people lose their land, they lose their temple and they are taken away into captivity or they're oppressed in some way. And the boot of the enemy is on their neck. Every single time. And after some period of time, they call out to God, please save us from what we've done. We should have lived your way. We should have served you. You should have been our only king. Yahweh, we repent of what we've done. And every single time, he says, okay. And he restores them. He sends a judge to rescue them, right? And bring them back. And then the king is anointed and the whole thing starts over and over and over again. Jesus references this. Um, in, in he say, so he says, you're gonna do this again. And then he references their whole history. He says, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous, Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Okay, so a couple things to know about this particular passage. Jesus starts with Abel. He mentions Abel, which is the beginning of Israel's story. It's the first, it's the first righteous person killed by one of God's people who is not a righteous person because Abel did things the way God wanted them to do. Um, and in the Old Testament, no good deed goes unpunished. And so Abel does the right thing, offers the right sacrifice, and Cain rises up, and kills him. And remember the whole text is, is the blood. Abel, where, uh, Cain, where's your brother? His blood call, calls out to me from the dirt. Like, um, and so that's the first time that this sort of happens where the, the prophet, quote unquote, is, is killed. Um, what about this guy, Zechariah? So Zechariah it's not a, not a well-known story. Um, it's in Second Chronicles chapter 24. Uh, basically, Zechariah rebukes the nation for their sin. Um, And there's various ways that they are rebuked for their sin by various prophets. Um, It always has to do with um, offering sacrifices in vain when they actually have like you sin, you do whatever you want, you 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 oppress people, you um, ignore the laws, you don't take the Sabbath, which is the time of peace and shalom. It's a a justice law. You don't do all of the things that God's people how they're supposed to live um, in in a way that is just and merciful and loving. And instead. You live how you want, and then you offer sacrifices to cover what you, the bad things you're doing. That's what they're doing. They're living however they want, knowing that they can just kill a lamb, throw it on the altar, and God's going to cover it. And so they're living in their sin constantly. Um, and so Zechariah rebukes the nation. Um, Joash uh, is stirred up. This guy named Joash is stirred up to the people to stone him to death in the very temple courts. And so he's in the temple, and he's teaching. He's calling the people to repent. He's like... You're offering sacrifices, but you're not actually trying to live justly and show mercy and to love and to be the presence of God in the world. That is different from everyone else. And they rise up and they stone him right there in the temple courts, next to the temple courts by the, by the altar. He's hanging onto the horns of the altar. He's being killed. Okay? Now, why does Jesus name these two characters? Okay. In the modern Bible, we call it, uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we call it the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's ordered a certain way. It starts with Genesis. It ends with Malachi. Right? or Malachi, depending on how you read it. <laughs> Malachi. Um, and in the, in the ancient sort of Hebrew text, the way they ordered the scriptures was different. It's not the same as we read it. Um, it started with Genesis, yes, but it ended with Second Chronicles. That was the last book. And so what Jesus is doing is he's pointing out that the entirety of their story of Israel, the entire story, is them killing their prophets. God sends a message, they kill him. God sends a message, they kill him. God sends a message, they kill him. It is the entirety of Israel's story. That's why Jesus says, the reason you're going to kill me is because this is what you've always done. You have always lived this way. And then he has harsh words. He says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? He's like, and how are you going to escape what's coming? Because every single time you live this way, your temple gets knocked down. It gets pushed off into the burn pile. Like, everything gets destroyed. The word hell here, there's five different words for hell. If you'd like to dive more into this, here's a... Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug for the app, the Watermark app, right? Like, download the app, uh, on, and on our, on our app, um, there is a three-hour teaching in there called Reasoning on Hell. It's, I go through the entirety of scriptures and talk about the picture of what this is. I'm not, I'm not a Calvinist, so I'm, I don't describe it in a way that, that some people do, but... Um, it's, uh, it's, I pull out the five words that is used here, specifically this word as well. This word Gehenna is specifically, it's a physical place about a half mile from where Jesus is standing at the bottom of the hill. It's a place where the, where the fire is always burning. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. It was where child sacrifice was performed back in the Old Testament. And the prophets destroyed that whole place and said, nothing good will ever be here again. And they always threw their garbage there and burned it from that point on. And so Jesus says, he says, and how will you? Who are killing your prophets and ignoring God and not living the way you're supposed to. You're partnering with Rome, who is oppressing your own people. How are you going to escape the fire that is coming? This is communal. This is not individual. This is not like in you, and in you, and you. Like, this is communal. This is God's people failing in their vocation to be God's people. And he's saying, what has always happened before is going to happen again. He's not even speaking metaphorically. He's literally saying, this is going to happen again. By the way, it did. In the year 90 AD, the entire temple was wiped out. It was laid desolate, as Jesus says. The whole thing was knocked down, burned to the ground. The Jewish people were chased out by the Romans, and they went to the, the, um, the fortress of Herod, and they took it over, and they held out there for a long time while the Romans built a massive mountain that reaches. They built like a ramp up to the top of the mountain to, to Herod's fortress. And when they, when they got in there, the Jewish people had all killed themselves so that they wouldn't be taken enslaved again. It's exactly as Jesus says. He says, there is a way you are supposed to live. And when you don't live that way, when you live like every other nation, you will exist like every other nation and you will end like every other nation. But you were called to be my people, a specific, unique creation in this world who bears my image. You were supposed to live a different way and not be consumed with power and money and all that... you're supposed to be the presence of God. This is how you're supposed to live. So how, like this is why your house keeps burning down. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. When Matthew is writing this, like a, few, a couple decades after, uh, after the death of Christ, he's a pastor and he's, he's got his own church and he's writing to them because he's getting old. And he's writing to them um, about... He's writing them about basically how to be the church. He's telling them the story of Christ. Um, And so imagine Matthew writing this, and he knows exactly what he's writing. The words of Jesus. to talk about, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Jesus, first off. Peter, crucified upside down. Um, Different people, you will crucify them. And they were. They were rounded up and killed in various ways, including crucifixion. Others you will flog in your synagogues. This happened. Others you will pursue from town to town. And everyone except for, I believe, John was slaughtered, who was following? Christ, who was preaching the risen Christ as king of all. He says, this is, this is what it will be. And so, how will you escape this? Here's exactly what's going to happen. He says, this is why your house keeps burning down. Again, he's not talking about individual, eternal conscious torment right here. He's specifically... Um, He's, he says, because you have no cares for the, for the love and the mercy of God to wash over the world, because you don't represent me well, because you are taking part in it for financial benefit, for power, which is what these Pharisees were doing with the Sadducees. They were mortal enemies, but they were partnering together. Um, he says, this is what's going to happen. But, and this is where it gets huge. He says, here's everything that's going to happen. He says, but it's not that I want this to happen. And here's what Jesus says. Watch this. This is passionate right here. Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Imagine him saying it loud to everyone because he's in Jerusalem and everyone is standing around. Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. You wouldn't do it. Now, the picture Jesus is painting here. Is incredible. So um, let, me paint, let me help you understand the vivid illustration. So he's talking about, he's already, he's made a few references already that, that for the first century would be understandable. He talks about brood of vipers escaping flames. Um, this is normal when you're burning a field in the ancient world, a farm, a field. Um, John mentions the same thing. Um, the snakes, they would, they would run from the fire. Obviously, all the rodents would. John calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. Jesus picks up on that. Vipers escaping flames, moving across a field. Um, And then he says, um, I want to gather you together to protect you from the fires as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Okay. Um, So the picture here, the vivid illustration, is a farmyard fire. And in this picture, there is a hen who, while the house is burning down, a mother hen gathers her chicks and covers them underneath her sacrificing herself in the fire so that her chicks can live. This is a normal thing that happens. Um, you can find stories of this happening of, of during barn fires, various different animals, chickens, sheep, cows, laying and shielding their, their, their children from the fires. And the mother dies and you pick up the hen that is dead and there's live chicks under there. This is, this is the picture Jesus is offering. It's not like he's saying, you're going to get exactly what you deserve and I'm glad. He says... Don't you know how this ends? But I, I've never wanted it to end like this. I want to gather you under my wings. I want to save you from this. I want to save you from, from the life that you were choosing. God's people. Jesus wants to save his own people. From going off track and enduring once again what they've always endured. Jesus wants to save his people. He wanted to save them. But ultimately it happened again. Jerusalem was destroyed. They had partnered with earthly governments that eventually declared more allegiance than God and they weren't willing to do it. And you know what? Jesus wants to save us too. Jesus wants to save Christians too. Because we are regularly taking part in things that we ought not be taking part in without a thought because it's just the modern way or the American way or whatever country you live in. It's, it's the way of those people. We are called to be the people of God who think of the cross in everything. Who think of the Eucharist. Who ponder what it means to model Jesus in this world. Jesus who was not swayed by financial benefits. Jesus who was not swayed by violence, who didn't respond with violence. The Jesus who when he's around a bunch of people who want power and influence, he who has the most power and influence puts a towel around his waist and washes the feet of those people to show them that's not the path. This is the path. This is how it goes. This is how you live as my people. Jesus wants to save Christians. He wants to. Because we are taking part in things regularly. We... Jesus wants to save us from making the good news about another world and not this one. How many times have you thought of and proclaimed the gospel as, it's about one day, it's about some other time, not here. Like it has nothing to offer us here. Like this place is a mess and God's just going to wipe it all clean and destroy it all. Um, That is not how the first century Christians understood the message of God or the future of the church at all. By the way, that's very American. Like that's not, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Um, Jesus wants to save us from making the good news about another world and not this one. The gospel is good news for this world. It is hope. The great day of the Lord is not something that, that is this terrifying thing. It is the great hope of the world when God sets things right again. Um, Jesus wants to save us from preaching a gospel that is only about individuals and not about the actual systems that are enslaving these individuals, that are holding them down these things that we have created, human beings have created. And Jesus is offering another way. He's offering another way. Um, Jesus wants to save us from shrinking uh, shrinking the gospel down to a transaction about the removal of, of personal sin and not about all of creation being reconciled to God under Christ. God intends to make the world right, to set things the way they were created to be. And from the beginning of scriptures to the very end, this is the story that God is telling. And we can tell ourselves all we want that, no, 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 it's all hopeless. But I think Jesus wants to save us from that, that idea, that everything is hopeless. Jesus wants to save us from a ridiculous and biblically illiterate teaching that say the world can't be made better when, when God actually intends to set everything to rights through his spirit and through his church. If we would understand the life that Jesus was living. Let me read you something. Last Sunday, Easter Sunday, Christians were killed by bombings. At least 300 or so, maybe more. I'm not up to speed on the count at this point. Of how many Christians were slaughtered by a terrorist act. And I hear Christians wanting to respond in ways that are the path of earthly nations. Not the path of the cross. But the pastors of these churches, they seem to be understanding the path of the cross. One of the pastors, Pastor Roshan, of a church where 28 of his members were killed. On that morning, it says in a video, pastor Rashan, said, pastor, pastor Rashan said, we are hurt, we are angry also, but still, as a senior pastor of Zion Church, Batacolao, uh, the whole congregation and every family affected, we say to the suicide bomber, and also to the group that sent the suicide bomber, that we love you, and we forgive you, and no matter what you have done to us, we love you, because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to live a life that is cruciform. That is modeled after the path of Jesus. If our answers to tragedies are the same answers that everyone else is giving, our answers are not divine. They're not special. It's not the same answers that ev- The answer that every human being has had since the beginning of time has been, well, we should kill them. That is not Jesus' answer. No, we should die for them. And we should love them. And we should do everything we can To pour ourselves out for them. Why? Why would we do that? Because there are things worse than than death. There is something worse. The early Christians, the apostles understood there's something far worse than dying. For instance, destroying the image of God in someone else, dehumanizing another human being. And they refused to take part in it because they believed in resurrection, because they believed that the path of Christ was the way forward. That allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out, as Jesus was, is how salvation enters into the world. It is how people are saved from these things that enslave them. From the anger, the bitterness, the tribalism, the whole thing. The church is always about hope. That is our main message. Um, And a converted church will really cause the mountains to tremble. Like a converted church. a church, a, A group of people taking the bread and the cup that was broken and poured out for us and taking it and saying... What now, Jesus? That is how the world changes. When the church understands that they are not taking communion, they are becoming communion. That is what they are doing. The gathering of the church, this is not the point. The point is not to plant a church and grow it and have lots of people to come in and say, we're Christians, let's sing some songs. Here we are, we gathered, we're bigger than all their churches, and we made it, we did. Like That has nothing to do with anything. The church in Romans was like 150 people. And they didn't even own any land. They lived communal lives amongst each each other. The gathering of the church in a a service or a worship or teaching settings is to remind and instruct and inspire the people about being the Eucharist for the worlds in which they live, the street on which you live, allowing yourself to be broken and poured out for these people, for your neighbors, for the people you come into contact with throughout the day. How are you being the presence of Christ with them? How has it worked out in your life? In the letter to Hebrews, um, you see a perfect picture of what the church is supposed to be doing. It says, let us hold unswervingly, incredible word, to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. So that when we come together, we come together to spur each other on towards what it says here is good deeds. Um, The Greek word there, like if you follow the root word back, the Hebrew word, is this word mitzvot. Everyone say mitzvot. All right. All right. It means it's, it's not just good deeds, it's deeper. It's actions taken to heal and repair the world. When we get together, we stir up in each other whatever actions you can take that will take part in the healing and repairing of all that is broken in God's world that God intends to fix and has called you to take part and partner with God in this. Are you with me? Like, this is what we're doing. Um, day in and day out, unswervingly, as the text says, Unswervingly. Not swerved when we are offered more comforts. Not swerved when you're offered maybe a higher position of office in your nation. Not swerved when there's some financial kickback. Not swerved when you're offered, eh, that's a cushy job. Or or this group will accept you. Unswervingly. Never swerving from the fact that Jesus is Lord, the cross is the path forward. Here's how things bring healing. This is how the world will be made whole. Jesus is king. And if Jesus is Lord and king, Nobody else is. And if we are citizens of the kingdom of God, the three, the three ingredients are all there. We have a king, Jesus, we have land, the entirety of the world, by the way. Um, and there's a kingdom people, the church. We are now in the presence of the kingdom of God, which is here and which is coming. It takes precedence over everything else. And so these gatherings are the beginning. This is not the point, this is the beginning. And for the next week, we're going to pour ourselves out and we're going to come back and we're going to gather again and we're going to rile ourselves up to do it again. And when people are in need, we're going to do something about it. This is the start. I'm here to put some things in perspective and to remind you, to provoke you and comfort you and inspire you and challenge you. Not only, I'm not here to just serve you the Eucharist. I'm here to remind you that you are the Eucharist. In the same way that Jesus was broken and poured out for us why don't we take communion? Uh, our, our, our communion service, you guys can go take the elements and spread bear out in the room. The, in the same way that Jesus, the body of Christ, was broken and poured out for us and we receive it and we are filled, in that same way, we are now the body of Christ. The Spirit of God is present among us, spurring us forward and we should be allowing ourselves constantly to, to live out the cross life, allowing ourselves to be broken and poured out for the world around us. This is how... Things are made whole. God's people committed to living in the path of Christ. Unswervingly. No outside influences barging in and saying, you could have a bigger voice if you just do this. Just do this. 30 pieces of silver. Like, what, what is it that would take you? And Jesus wants to save us from these things that we take part in. Jesus wants to save you from that. Your whole life, not just your soul. Let's pray and let's take communion together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Guide us, guide our hearts. Fashion us in your image. Make us whole again. Every day, allow us to wake up and and lay down on the altar and become living sacrifices again, Father. Thank you. In your name, amen.